Concord Matters is made possible in part by a generous gift from Set Apart to Serve, the church work recruitment initiative of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Many church workers always knew they wanted to serve in Christ's church, but many pastors, teachers, and other full-time church workers left careers to pursue this life of service. If you or a friend have been praying and thinking about a second career as a church worker, the Set Apart to Serve team wants to help. Visit kfuo.org slash SAS. That's kfuo.org slash SAS. Greetings in the name of Christ and welcome to Concord Matters show that seeks unity in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ by his inerrant word through the study of the clear and concise teachings confessed in the book of Concord. As Peter boldly confessed of Christ, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. We boldly confess the truth of the entirety of God's word, nothing more, nothing less, all for the sake of a clear conscience in Christ for all who hear and confess these words. I'm your host, Brady Finnern, District President of the Minnesota North District of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Thank you for joining us on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. We continue our studies in the Augsburg Confession with Articles 22 and 23, both kinds in the sacrament and marriage of priests. These articles are kind of hitting the ears a little bit differently for us today, a little bit alien to what we experience in the church. Because when was the last time you went to a Lutheran church that did not allow you to receive both kinds? And how many times you've been to a Lutheran church and they forbid a pastor to be married? Well, we'll talk about this and the many moving parts then and why it is still important for us today. But it really comes down to this, this question. What is your final authority? What is the church's final authority? And ultimately, as we know and confess boldly, it's God's word. So what does God's word have to say? We'll go through that today. Open up your book of Concord, open up your Bibles, more importantly, and let's start confessing. If you have any questions concerning our study of the Augsburg Confession from beginning to end, send us an email, kfuo at kfuo.org, kfuo at kfuo.org. Joining us in the Confession of Christ, we welcome back the Reverend Dr. Stephen Mueller, Professor of Theology and Dean of Christ College at Concordia University in Irvine, California. Dr. Mueller, welcome back to Concord Matters. Thanks, good to be back with you. I should probably correct you, though, just to be fair. David Loy is the Dean of Christ College. I'm the Chief Mission Officer. Oh, there it is. Well, I will make sure I change yep. that. So just in case anybody was worried, as I did in the introduction, we are now in the right place. So uh, Chief Mission Officer, is that what you said? That's correct, yes. All right, very good. Make sure I'll get that right from here on out. But Dr. Mueller, tell me what's going on for you and the Saints at Concordia University. You know, it is a great day at Concordia Irvine. Our first-time freshmen are moving into campus as we speak. So a lot of energy, a lot of excitement on campus, and we're ready to start classes on Monday morning. I love it. Well, and that's a reminder for you, our listeners, that to pray for our Concordias um, throughout the United States as they confess Christ and and just a lot of moving parts in higher education. So people like Dr. Mueller and other people in leadership continually pray for them as they make sure that we are clearly confessing Christ in a very crazy world. But also, you know what? Nothing new under the sun, which is why we look to the past and something like the confessions and look to scripture, knowing that it's still relevant for us today and that every person needs Christ. 
So I, I'm going to go right into it today. We are studying the Book of Concord, Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions, a reader's edition of the Book of Concord from Concordia Publishing House. And we're beginning our time on page 45, which is we are now in Articles 22 and 23. And as I mentioned, these two articles are something we always have to ask, not a uh, um, does this make sense? Because there's things in Scripture that maybe doesn't make sense to our minds. But the question of what does Scripture have to say, um, especially when it comes to both kinds and the sacrament. So I want you to just go right into it. And the note on page 45, Article 22, both kinds of the sacrament and start digging in. The note, as it says, prior to the Reformation, the practice had developed of withholding the consecrated wine from the laity during the Lord's Supper. Only the consecrated bread was distributed to them. However, priests who celebrated Mass drank from the cup. Theories developed within the church to help support this practice. One stated that the bread alone was enough for the laity, since Christ's body must also contain his blood. The practice of withholding the cup from the congregation was clearly contrary to Scripture, and was an insult to God's royal priests, all those who trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. The early church fathers spoke about all of God's people receiving both kinds or elements of this holy meal. Dr. Mueller, as we look at this, it is alien to our thought process. Why would we not give both kinds? Can you give us a little bit of a what was going on in those days to help us understand? Sure. Uh, well, it's good that it's alien to our thought process because that means we're anchored in Scripture. <laughs> Uh, but it's, you know, it, it's hard to, to project back into this way of thinking, but really this was something that developed as best we can tell for, by the lay people. Uh, so they had developed a Eucharistic piety that recognized uh, this is the true body and blood of Jesus. Uh, and they took that very seriously and with great reverence and they were troubled in concerts. What happens if you slip up with the elements, you know, specifically what happens if you spill from the cup, you know, you're taking Jesus blood and going, who knows where, you know, onto your clothes or onto the floor. And, you know, they were terribly afraid that they would offend God by doing that. Now, I mean, just think of it in, in our own terms, if we're distributing communion and we drop a host, which we should not, we drop a host. Well, the solution is fairly straightforward. You pick it up. Right? And uh, you don't immediately serve it to the next person. Uh, most pastors that I that I know will uh, consume it themselves, so that people don't don't doubt you know what's what's going on there. Uh, but uh, you pick it up and you move along. But if you spill the cup, it's even today it's harder to deal with. It's you know we have to we have to take you know, care in cleaning it up, and we don't want to give offense. And particularly in this in this you know, pre-Reformation period. People were desperately afraid that they would sin against the presence of Jesus by doing something inappropriate to his body and blood. And so it was the lay people, as best we can tell, that were asking, we don't want to do this. And in fact, there was clergy opposition to it. Uh, clergy at the beginning wanted the lay people to keep continuing, but they pushed on to say, no, the body's enough. The body's enough. And eventually... Uh, the church bought into that request from the lay people and came up with a philosophical understanding to justify it. But it was really all about spilling. So, well, that is, <laughs> it's one of those realities as you look at it. 
it makes sense, right? It makes sense on how people were worried about this, worried about that. And therefore, this is what we now do, a philosophical reasoning and how that can morph into something of, you know, clerical kind of control, um, the desire of uplifting the priesthood or something along those lines, all of which doesn't go back to the plain text, which is drink of it, all of you. <laughs> it, was not, it was not a question mark of that, but yet how easily we can get caught up in some philosophical understanding of everything without looking at the plain text. Anything else you want to uh, talk about before we dig in? Sure. Uh, I mean, I think some of it is, I think at the heart of it is ultimately a fear. Uh, and that's, that's, you know, as I look back, it's not just the error of what got introduced there, but is what led to it. There was a fear that this supper, which was given graciously by our Lord for our good and our benefit, would become this moment of scandal. And I'm just terrified I'm going to do something wrong with Jesus. You know, that, that Jesus, now we want to be reverent with the supper. You know, I certainly want to be careful with, with the elements and, and take every precaution. But the thought that the Jesus who gave him his own flesh into death on the cross for us would be looking to strike down the communicant who slipped just breaks your heart. You know, it's turning, it's turning this into a, into a terrible law uh, instead of recognizing Christ is here for you and for your good. It is, I'll just share this short story. Um, there was a, a pastor that I know and he went through, they went through confirmation and they went through everything with the kid, the kid, the children, the eighth graders, when they were confirmed their faith, they confirmed their faith and they're about to receive the Lord's Supper. And this one kid was so scared and he received the, the host. He received the host and he was so scared. And he's like, what do I do? <laughs> and the pastor said, take and eat. And so it's just, you know, for the forgiveness of your sins. And so he took it and it was just kind of this, this simple reality that is so joyous that we don't want to be dancing necessarily up front, you know, but we do, de we do definitely want to go with confidence, with reverence and to walk away with joy. So it's just kind of one of those things where, we just need that simple reminder, which is why I love about this article. And so let's start digging into this article, page 45. We begin at number one on page 45, as it just gets back to simplicity and says these words. The lady are given both kinds in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, because this practice has the Lord's command. Drink of it, all of you, from Matthew 26, verse 27. Christ has clearly commanded that all should drink from the cup. Unless anyone misleadingly say that this refers only to the priest in 1 Corinthians 11.27, Paul cites an example. From it appears that the whole congregation used both kinds. This practice has remained in the church for a long time. It is not known when or by whom or by whose authority it was changed. Cardinal Cusanus mentions that the time when it was approved. Cyprian in the same place testifies that the blood was given to the people. Jerome testifies to the same thing when he says the priests administer the Eucharist and distribute the blood of Christ to the people. Indeed, Pope Galatius commands that the sacrament not be divided. Only a recent custom has changed this. So Melanchthon is making a very clear case about why we should do it. And it's really hard not to say, well, duh, as you hear these words. Pastor Dr. Mira, what are your thoughts? Yeah, um... I think that first sentence really gets it, right? This is all because of the Lord's command. You know, Christ says, take and eat, take and drink. That's it. 
Now, as we read this, we do know more of the details of the history of this than I think Melanchthon had available. So you know, he's, he's right, you know, Cardinal Cusanus mentions it. So it was approved officially uh, in 1415, uh, the Council of uh, Constance, I think, you know, officially, you know, sanctioned communion in one kind. Uh, but yeah, prior to that, this is a novelty. This, this is a novelty, and, and uh, this is this is given to us by our Lord Jesus. Now, let's get back to this a little bit from a uh, from a congregational standpoint, and we can make it sound like it's so simple. Then what's the problem? And we can easily get into this uh, care of souls dynamic where you would have a whole slew of people in a congregation. Let's say that they're, they're with the Concordians. A pastor stands up there and, and all of a sudden everybody is receiving both kinds. And there's people whose consciences would almost be burdened because they're receiving both kinds. Well, I was taught this. I was taught this. I was taught that. There's a lot of parts to this that it's not as simple as, well, Jesus said so, therefore, and act as if, and I think the practice should be done. But don't act as if the people in the pews are all going to be like, oh, okay, that sounds great. We're just going to do that now. Pastor, Dr. Muir, do you want to talk about that a little bit? That, okay, this is what it clearly says, but yet we're dealing with real people in real time. Your thoughts? Sure. Uh, well, maybe two things to go at that. One is that they, you know, sometimes to, to justify things, we come up with elaborate systems. And so the, the Church of Rome had begun in this pre-Reformation period uh, to explain why it was okay. You know, and, and they came up with a, a big lofty explanation called concomitance, you know, and it basically means this is, you know, what you're receiving is the whole Jesus. Uh, and so if you receive body, if you receive the body of Jesus, well, a body has flesh and blood. Uh, and so for your whole life, someone's taught you when you receive that host, you are receiving body and blood. So you've got everything you need. Everything you need is right there. And most people weren't reading scripture, of course, and they weren't, they weren't seeing everything. And so you're, that's the Eucharist as they know it. Now, for that pastoral concern, I really thank you for, for raising it. We actually can see that in action in more recent times. So you know, communion of one kind remained the custom in most Roman Catholic you know, contexts until this generation. You know, and, you know, post-Vatican II, it's been allowable for laity to receive the cup. Not commanded or not expected, but it was allowed. It was allowed. And so there are parishes today that, that do and parishes that don't. Uh, and if you go to a Roman Catholic Mass, depending on where you are, you may see people, even when they're serving in both kinds, which is norm today, uh, you may well see people who skip the cup altogether. You know, for whatever reason uh, they have going, but underneath it is, hey, I've been told I am receiving the blood of Christ. Hmm. And it's hard to unlearn habits like that. Uh, but that's, again, why we have to come back to Scripture. Jesus said, take and eat, take and drink. And this is why it's, it's so important, and for you to, one, pray for your pastors and other workers as they patiently just continually point people back to the word, uh, because it's really easy, especially for your pastor, 
uh, to just to say, well, this is the way it is. End of story. What's your problem? Um, because we're sinful people. And it's very easy for anybody else to say, well, this is the way I've always done it. How dare you tell me to do it differently? Which is why we pray for patience. We pray for the fruit of the spirit, um, kindness to be part of this, but also for us to, once again, not say this is my opinion, but to open the text and go back to those simple words. Because when it says that you receive this for the forgiveness of your sins, you're doing this for the sake of the person. You're not doing this for the sake of winning a war. You're doing it for the sake of the soul that is receiving. And so that's just something, and that goes with so, I mean, we, Dr. Mueller and I could talk forever about different dynamics that are like this, but it's just a good general rule that what do we do when we have something like this? Let's open up the scriptures and see what it says and let God lead us as we direct it. And because you can go into history and all these things, there's always more history to uncover, always more stories to uncover. But what does the plain text actually say? And let God lead us from there. So let's finish out our, our article here, um, because it, it still is important for us today. We're starting at number nine on page 45, and Melanchthon continued. It is clear that any custom introduced against God's commandments is not to be allowed, as church law bears witness. This custom has been received not only against the scripture, but also against old canon law and the example of the church. Therefore, if anyone preferred to use both kinds in the sacrament, they should not have been compelled to do otherwise as an offense against their conscience. Because the division of the sacrament does not agree with the ordinance of Christ, it is our custom to omit the procession with the host, which has been used before. Now, Pastor, I want to, I want to get to the, uh, the, the procession of the host, because that's, that's kind of like added on as like just a little, little talk that is totally not contextual for us today. But I like how, once again, and this happens throughout the confessions, and I encourage you, our listeners, to look for this word, is it says conscience, to make sure that people's consciences are not seared or terrified, like Pastor said so well. Um, when you go to the sacrament, they should go with a clear conscience that I'm going to receive what Christ has told me I'm going to receive, which is a blessing to the receiver and a blessing to the church as they do what God has commanded them. But it's really interesting, number nine, it is clear that any custom introduced against God commandments is not to be allowed. Now, that's that's a very bold statement, but also very clear at the same time. Um, so it's a good reminder for all of us that we want to do what God says, and we don't want to do what he doesn't say. Dr. Mueller, your thoughts on that last section? Yeah, I think that, that's exactly right. You know, it's anchored in God's will, and nobody has the authority to go against that. No, no counsel, no pastor, no layperson. If God says, do something, then that issue is settled. But as we approach this, that issue of conscience is really how we need to think about this. You know, it's one, on the one hand to debate theology with someone who's, you know, saying, you know, no, you don't have to take this because of concomitants. You know, there, there's that. But really, on the level of the individual communicant, if someone is struggling, we should be gentle with those who are struggling to overcome that conscience. You know, uh, we should follow our conscience, but if our conscience is in contradiction to the Word of God, well, we need to follow the Word of God, but now that person's in that really tricky spot where they're doing something that their gut says is wrong, and maybe their brain says is right. You know, and that's a person who needs good pastoral care. They need you know, anchoring in the gospel. And sometimes they need our patience as we work them through situations. And that's true whether it's about communion practices, 
uh, or about any other area of, of Christian practice. I mean, just apply this for a moment to other things that we might get caught up in with communion. You know, what's the right mode of distribution? You know, mm-hmm. should it be chalice or are other options available? Should the host be placed directly in my mouth or is it okay for me to have it in my hand? And, you know, there are answers to these things, but sometimes the people who struggle with them, they're not asking for knowledge. They're genuinely struggling in conscience as to what should be. And so we need to, we need to keep that in mind as we go along. Uh, but always coming back, the way we fix our conscience is with the word of God. You know, so coming back again and again to say, well, this is what Jesus invites us to. And it's for our good. And yes, you are welcome to his table. You know, and here's why. And receive his gifts. Can you talk to us a little bit about the procession, um, as it talks about the procession of the host? Uh, what, what is that? Yeah, so this is, uh, that's always the surprising part of this article because it is, you know, we've been talking about something and it's, you almost get the impression of, well, I got to address this somewhere and I don't want a separate article, so here it goes. So, <laughs> so this is uh, a custom that developed uh, that uh, we know as typically the Corpus Christi, uh, the body of Christ procession, and it's still practiced uh, in, in some areas uh, where after the supper, uh, the Eucharistic elements are reserved, uh, they're set aside, and, and in a typical you know, Roman Catholic parish, they're placed in a, in a tabernacle, a secure chest, uh, and a candle's lit in front of it so that you know the body of Jesus is reserved there and is worthy of honor. Uh, well, at certain times, that host, the, the consecrated uh, bread, can be taken out for adoration by other people, and at certain times of the year, in certain events, it can be processed or paraded uh, into other areas so that you are literally bringing Jesus to those places. So maybe just a quick story. Uh, I've seen this in, in small ways around Roman Catholic parishes, but the most dramatic effect I ever saw, I was uh, sitting at a cafe a number of years ago uh, in Guatemala, and suddenly there was a, you know, big ruckus outside and a parade starts going by. And so we're all kind of curious and we look out and here comes, you know, the congregation with the priest in full vestments and they are carrying uh, what's called a monstrance, a, a processional uh, vehicle really with a consecrated host. And so what they were doing in their thought was we are carrying Jesus through our community so that people can adore him and so that his presence in the community can be a blessing. So that's, that's the sort of thing that, that Melanchthon's talking about. It's using the Eucharist in a way different than what Jesus said. So, so Jesus' institution, this is my body, this is my blood, take, eat, and drink for the forgiveness of your sins. And Corpus Christi is the one that remains of people splitting now the sacrament up and using it for something completely different that's not spoken of at all in Scripture. Well, may we not do the same? Um, and it because you hear stories of them taking it to their garden to help uh, grow their plants or to in their homes to, and then then all of a sudden people are not taking and eating uh, for the forgiveness of their sins. And but but it makes sense as far as this understanding of okay, well if it's so great here, then obviously it's going to be great over there. So once again, going back to the simple plain text, and so you are listeners. 
my encouragement, actually my exhortation to you is go and receive the Lord's Supper. Go and receive it. And, and there's a lot of variety that you'll have. You go to one church, they only put it into your mouth. Uh, go to another church, they only have a cup. They don't have individual cups. You go to another church that they don't necessarily process and all line up or they don't kneel. That's another controversy I've heard with it is the big thing is always going back to what the scripture says, especially when you look at the small catechism, what is happening when we receive this, which the main focus is for the forgiveness of your sins. Go as a sinner, come back a forgiven sinner. Uh, Dr. Mueller, as we can move forward to the next uh, um, the next article, any last thoughts you have on both kinds and, and for our listeners today? Yeah, always back to the words of the promise of Jesus. Take and eat, take and drink. It's for you. It's for your forgiveness. Rejoice in that good news. Wonderful. Well, thanks be to God. I think right now we'll take our break. We are studying the 21st and 22nd articles of the Augsburg Confession with Reverend Dr. Stephen Mueller, and we'll be right back. military veteran, engineer, entrepreneur. These are just some of the former careers held by current LCMS pastors, careers that they left behind to serve congregations in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. No matter the background, our Lord calls men who have a passion for the word and a love for serving Christ to be pastors, a sacred, joyful, and essential vocation. If you or a friend have been praying and thinking about becoming a pastor, visit weareyourseminaries.org and put your experience and skills to new use in pastoral ministry. Visit weareyourseminaries.org seminaries.org. Welcome back. We are studying and confessing the truth of the both kinds in the sacrament and the marriage of priests from the Augsburg Confession, Articles 20, 21 and 22, with Reverend Dr. Stephen Mueller of Concordia University in Irvine, California. Now, past Dr. Mueller, as we come to the second article of our day today, it's the marriage of priests. Now, this is something that is is so prominent and still today of trying to work through um, what does this mean? And we can easily get to this. We can easily get to philosophical questions. I've had good Catholic friends who have made arguments with me why the priest should not get married. You can have just practical questions. Well, it might be just cheaper to have a priest that's not married. Well, there you go. I don't know what that means. but um, and, and you go to other parts. And once again, we will go back to what Scripture has to say. So once again, this is kind of alien to our understanding of things. Because if you go to Lutheran Church, uh, it is something that is, you know, that marriage is a possible thing. But also today, I do want to address this, that it's not as if... A pastor has to be married. And so what does that mean of the gift of celibacy, which we'll be talking about further? But let's continue with the note to the review on page 46, article 23, the marriage of priests. Underlying the issue of forced priestly celibacy, as with other abuses arising in the church, is the authority of the church to command and forbid something not mentioned in Scripture. The Lutherans maintained that the church had no authority from God to command what he had commanded, nor to forbid, forbid excuse me, what he has not forbidden. The Bible clearly teaches that the Apostle Peter had a wife. This example should have served as convincing proof that priestly marriages were God-pleasing. That there are men who are given the gift of chastity is affirmed, 
but the view that the church can and should forbid all who wish to be priests from marrying is resoundingly rejected. Marriage is a gift from God to be received with thanksgiving, both by lay people and clergy. To suggest otherwise is to introduce a teaching of the evil one into the church. As we deal with the first article, Dr. Mueller, um, what's going on? It's a little bit alien to our own ears. What's happening that we're talking about the marriage of priests? Sure. Well, this is one that, that goes back in a lot of different ways. It was something that was talked about to the church uh, for centuries uh, and more common in some places than others. Uh, but it hit kind of a turning point uh, in uh, 1075 uh, when Pope Gregory VII proclaimed you know, mandatory celibacy. And actually there was a time when clergy who were already married, their marriages were dissolved, uh, which is really mind-blowing uh, that that would happen. Uh, and, the, and the thought was, and there's all kinds of things that underlie it, uh, but that, that uh, clergy would have to be celibate um, in order to be worthy enough to carry out this office. Uh, and as you said, we should not disparage those who have the gift of celibacy. Uh, it's very important. But scripture reminds us not all have this gift. Uh, and furthermore, that marriage is a good gift of God uh, that's not forbidden uh, from, from clergy any more than it is from lay people. Uh, so for whatever reason they had going, and there's, there are multiple ones that we can explore if you like, uh, but they decided that you know, this is going to, this is, this is now it. Well, let's dig into it a little bit. Like you said, it it is it is a uh, it's as unique. I'll, I'll just say that because it is something that that you can easily get into philosophy. And once again, we go back to God's word. So let's dig dig into the article, Article Twenty Three of the Augsburg Confession, on page forty six. Complaints about unchaste priests are are common. Platina writes that it is for this reason that Pope Pius is reported to have said that although there are reasons why marriage was taken away from the priest, there are far more important reasons why it should be given back. Since our priests wanted to avoid these open scandals, they married wives and taught that it was lawful for them to enter into marriage. First, because Paul says, uh, because, or because Paul says, because of temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, verse 2 and verse 9. So right there, Melanchthon comes up with a very simple argument. And what's his argument? Uh, well, it's about, it's about morality. Uh, you know, it starts off, and this is, you know, unfortunately, this is something we realize yet today. Uh, complaints about unchaste priests are common. Uh, human beings are created as sexual beings, and not all have the gift of celibacy, when it's compelled, that easily leads to immorality. Now, immorality can arise for other reasons as well, uh, and it's always it's always a concern. Uh, but uh, you know, as it says here, our priests, our clergy, did not want to fall into the same errors uh, as were happening in the medieval church, and knowing that it was lawful for them to marry, that this is God's institution, then it's better to be married than to sin. And this is why, like you said, we have a tendency to act as if, okay, well, God says that they should get married, and they get married, and then it will it will eliminate 
this sin or that sin or this sin. Well, the problem is <laughs> you still have sinners getting married. <laughs> and so it's not like it takes away all of immorality, but it certainly allows someone to live in the good graces of God by living a good and holy life in marriage with their conscience being clear. And so that's that's a clear thing too. We don't want to act like, well, we do this so that it would be less sinful, but more that they can actually live in accordance with God's holy word. Other thoughts you have in those first four or four, four lines? Yeah, that, that's, I think you're absolutely correct. We, we do want to remember that, uh, you know, we all as Christians have God's calling to lead chaste and decent lives and our ministers in particular uh, are called uh, to do this. And it's, and marriage isn't the, does, doesn't uh, inoculate us from sin. Uh, and uh, mm. you know, the same temptations may yet be, and yet it can be uh, a very helpful uh, institution to restrain those sinful impulses. Uh, yet we all need to turn in grace, right? Mm, amen. Amen. Let's continue on. We're on number five on Article 23, the marriage of priest. Second, Christ says, not everyone can receive the same. Where he teaches, uh, not everyone is able to lead a single life. God created human beings for procreation, Genesis 1. It is not within a person's power without God giving a unique gift to change his creation. For as clear as many have confessed, the no good, honest, chaste life no Christian, sincere, upright conduct has resulted from the attempt to lead a single life. Instead, a horrible, fearful unrest and torment of conscience has been felt by many until the end. Therefore, those who are not able to lead a single life ought to marry. No human law, no vow can destroy God's commandment and ordinance. For these reasons, the priests teach that it is lawful for them to marry wives. I really particularly like this section because it it brings upon the burden that could be brought upon um, believers when we institute a law that's clearly not in Scripture. Um, can you kind of unpack this a little bit? Because it, I, I think this one really hits to home to what some of the priests who were given to be married were, were dealing with and struggling with during this time. Sure. Well, I think there's there's a number of really interesting things in here. You know, the first is just that obvious point. If you force someone without the gift of celibacy to be a lifelong celibate, their temptations are going to rise. You know, and and uh, so it's on the one hand, it's just that pragmatic, as we've already said, the pragmatic God has given us marriage. Uh, if you do not have the gift, then seek to get married. You find the right person. You find a godly spouse get married, live chastely with them. Uh, I do like, though, the way that it, it puts it there. So, you know, it's not within a person's power within without God giving a unique gift to change his creation. Celibacy is a gift, mm. but not all gifts are given to everyone, and you can't force your way into a gift. We can't white-knuckle our way through temptation. You know, we, we can't do this by ourselves. And then look at that next sentence. It is clear no good, honest, chaste life, no Christian, sincere, upright conduct has resulted from the attempt to lead a single life. Now, what he's not saying is that there aren't good, honest, chaste, single people. We know that's not, what, not what's going on here. But he's saying that if you're doing this by yourself, not having the gift, thinking, I have all the power and strength 
to lead a sinless life, you don't have that ability. I do not have the strength to be sinless. Yeah. Nothing results from that. Uh, if you do not have God's gift, don't pretend you do. You're setting yourself up for failure. No, I think this is a good discussion for us, Dr. Mueller, as we're saying it. How does a young person or a, a person of all ages, how do they know they have the gift of celibacy? Because now I'm now I'm getting a little nervous about pastoral care for somebody and they said, you know, I really want to be married, you know, for the sake of sharing my life with another in my the opposite sex. And you're like, well, maybe God has given you the gift of chastity. Well, I mean, how does a person know? How how they figure this out? Do you have any insights to that? Sure. Well, uh, I'm here. I'm very thankful for you know, the mutual conversation and consolation of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We we need each other, uh, and in part to discern some of life's trickier things. Uh, in part, I think you know, knowing whether someone's got the gift. Well, let me start start this way. Uh, there's the gift of celibacy. And then there's the vocations that we find ourselves in. So someone who does not have the gift of celibacy may yet for a while or a period of their life, even an extended period of life, be in a vocation where they are going to need to be chaste and celibate because they are not in a relationship that God you know, authorizes for sexual expression. Uh, and that's part of the discipline that we all share. Uh, and so someone may need to be chaste and still long, I would like to be married. I would like this fuller expression. So that's, that's one kind of, of response. And frankly, that's one that I see more commonly than the other way of someone who wants that relationship, who wants to, you know, find the person to get married, to lead, lead a good life and hasn't found them yet. I see it all the time. I'm on a college campus. Uh, so mm -hmm. it's helping mm -hmm. people discern, you know, right, who's the, who's the right person? What's the right relationship? Uh, that's different than, you know, someone who has the gift, it might take them a while to sort it out, but they may come to the realization, I'm fine the way I am. You know, I've, I've talked to a number of people who've, who've said, you know, if God brings a relationship into my life, then that may change things. But I'm satisfied. I'm happy where I am right now. And I've, I've known a number of people, they're, they're all inspiring for me because this is, this is not my gift, uh, who, who say, I'm happy doing what I am. And look, the way that my life is structured right now, they very frequently will talk about the freedoms they have to get involved and do things that a married person may not. So you know, when, I, when I feel the urge to do something, I, I see something that could be done, uh, I need the support of my wife. Uh, you know, in, in doing things. And, you know, there's two of us that need to be persuaded for a number of things. Uh, and that might affect where I go, you know, what, what call I might consider, where I, where I might go serve. Uh, and so discerning that, I think it takes time and it takes prayer. And then I would finally say, I think it's possible that there's a person who might have the gift for a while and maybe be called to a married life later, or might be married. We've seen this certainly in lots of lives, someone who's married and uh, they lose their spouse and they choose at that point not to get married again. Uh, we should treat people as individuals and 
you know, consider their life circumstance. What we don't want to do is be cookie cutter, you know, every you know, one size fits all and you should be married by this age and you should, you know, here's the script for your life. Well, God works in people's lives differently. Uh, but he does tell us how to conduct ourselves in regard to our sexuality at any phase of our life based on the relationships we're in. I heard it once said, chaste, chastity outside of marriage, morality in marriage, um, obviously of a, of a husband and wife. And, and, and it is, it is important for us to keep that at the forefront of what scripture says, because often in our culture now that we'll say, well, your sexuality is your right, which then you can get into emotions and feelings and say, well, now I feel like I should leave my spouse, leave my husband, leave my wife because I have this desire for somebody else or, or all these, I mean, you can just go through all these emotions and determine, turn determinations of all of this, which goes back to this question here is what does God's word firmly say? And for, as you said, a person who maybe lost her spouse has decided not to get remarried. Well, then they are, you know, chastity is what they have been called to, um, unless something changes. Uh, and go down the line, and too often we we try to look at feelings of rights. This is my right, or this is my feelings, or these are my desires, as opposed to what God's word has to say. And as you mentioned, God blesses that uh, in marriage and those who are outside of marriage uh, in a chaste life, because there's opportunities the Lord will always give us to serve him. But let's continue on. Uh, we could probably talk about that a long time, too. We are on page 46 as he continues, well, Langton does, on number 10. It is clear that the ancient church priests were married men. For Paul says, an overseer must be the husband of one wife. 1 Timothy chapter 3. 400 years ago in Germany, for the first time, priests were violently forced to lead a single life. They offered such resistance that when the Archbishop of Mainz was about to publish the Pope's decree about celibacy, he was almost killed in a riot by enraged priests. This matter was handled so harshly that not only was marriage forbidden in the future, but existing marriages were torn apart, contrary to all laws, both divine and human. This was even contrary to canon law itself, as made not, by, not only by popes, but also by the most celebrated synods. Seeing this, that man's nature is gradually growing weaker as the world grows older, it is good to be on guard to make sure that no more vices work their way into Germany. Now I want to I want to cover number fourteen here separately from this because that's another fascinating addition by Melanchthon, but to me it's fascinating and you alluded to it before, told us of a little bit of history, that it's clear that church history did not always have this. This didn't come down from Saint Peter um, all the way to today, but it was kind of forced in the centuries before the Reformation. Any insights to what was going on? Yeah, so um, largely for sake of of discipline. Uh, and uh, so, so priests could go where they wanted to, so that there was no cost in supporting them, uh, so that they had no heirs that might receive any estate from them. I mean, there's all kinds of different things that are at play here uh, that that led to this decree of you know no marriage, no marriage for clergy. Uh, this this incident, the 400 years ago in Germany, uh, you know, it's interesting. They speak of the the violent reaction. Um, to that, but if you think what a terrible offense this was, not only to forbid marriage, but to literally dissolve existing marriages. Think of what, I mean, aside from the wrongness of the, of the action by itself, 
think of what that did to, you know, the clergy's wives and children. Suddenly you had people in the culture that, you know, were, were not going to be eligible for marriage again. They've probably lost all means of support, you know, going on. Uh, you've destroyed a family and you've destroyed individual lives. And this is just a terrible, terrible uh, action in the history of the church. Um, and just ought to be offensive all the way around. Now, I like where it starts out, right? And we, in the ancient church, priests were married men, as you said before. And then that example that he gives from 1 Timothy 3, you know, an overseer, a pastor, must be the husband of one wife. Uh, that's not saying every pastor must be married, but it's saying of one wife, that's a, that's a prohibition against polygamy. So he's saying you know, our, our clergy should be monogamous, should be monogamous, not polygamous. Uh, and held out. He does, you know, the apostle doesn't say no clergy should be married, just the opposite. And so as we look at the, the history, it's good for us to always go back to the question, okay, so why was this done? Was it done out of a conviction for God's word? Or was it done out of a conviction, as you said, of discipline? And it is something that we all have to be very careful about this, as we mentioned prior to both kinds of the sacrament, is that the argument could be made by people to say, well, we let our, our pastors get married because that's just better. No, we have to be very clear about, okay, why do, if you're sitting with a, a very good Roman Catholic person, they say, why do you have your pastors get married? We don't have them. Or they'll say, well, we probably should have them get married because that just sounds right. No, you look at scripture. You speak about, for example, in Mark chapter 1, Simon Peter, his mother-in-law, was uh, was sick. So he had a mother-in-law. It means he was married. As you mentioned in First First Timothy 3, clearly that Paul was given instructions for the pastoral office, that there should be a husband of one wife, not necessarily having to be married, but if he is married, he has one wife, um, addressing the needs of those days. And so it really is, I encourage you, our listeners, that even as something as simple as this, have scripture ready at hand to be able to speak about it. Have scripture ready at hand of why we take both kinds. Have scripture ready in hand when we talk about the mass next week with Dr. Stuckwish. Always have that ready to go uh, when you're addressing such issues. Now, I want to take a little bit of a step back here, Dr. Mueller, because I think this relates to what you're doing at Concordia. Um, young people today, probably, you know, we have a little bit of biblical illiteracy what are some of the things you've noticed and why it's important for our young people to have God's word ready at hand when they're confessing the faith? Sure. Well, everything around them in the world is telling them that there are no limits. Yeah, that they should seek their their pleasure and their desires, that sexuality is normal and free, uh, and that whatever relationship, there's there's no reason to wait. Uh, I mean, that's, that's the world we live in. Uh, and there's no boundaries anymore either. Uh, where previously society at least put some some boundaries on it, some guidelines uh, that said what's more normative than not. Today, it's whatever sexual expression you want is just fine. And that's a very self-centered reading of things, that my own feelings, my own freedom, my own desires are what governs everything, rather than to think, where am I in relationship to my creator? and his desires, my God, uh, and where am I in relationship to other people? Because that's what's often forgotten in the world today, uh, that those in sexual relationships, it's not just about me, but it's about the other people that I'm 
involved with. And so Dr. Mueller, sorry, go no, ahead. No, you're fine. Go. Okay. On number 14, it says this so clearly, seeing that man's nature is gradually growing weaker as the world grows older, it is good to be on guard to make sure that no more vices work their way into Germany. Like you said, like I said before, it's kind of like Melanchthon's like, well, I better write this here somewhere. So I'm going to write it right there. But do you have any insight to what he's capturing here in these words? Yeah, it's, I think we can relate to it really well. He's looking at the world around him and saying, wow, look at this decline. Look at this decline we're seeing in the morality and the ethics of the world around me. And you know, I, I hear this from people all the time. You know, the, the world is so much worse today than it used to be. Well, I'm never entirely convinced of that. I know what they're saying, but I'm never, I'm never really convinced of that. I think we notice things more. Uh, we have different things at the forefront than they used to be. Uh, but this world's always been opposed to the ways of our God. And his people have always called to be faithful, even and especially even when it's countercultural. And so I, you know, in a way, I take, I take kind of the strange comfort when I look back this far back in time and see the same complaint that I hear in my congregation. You know, people are, people are weaker than they used to be. They're tempted in different ways. Um, and I do look at that last, you know, it'd be good to be on guard so no more vices work their way in. Well, I, <laughs> well, I couldn't control what happened in Germany and more vices did creep in. We can't really control what creeps into our society. But we can answer God's call for ourselves and we can proclaim the truth. Well, the Lord granted as we hear these words, because it is it is it is fascinating the more you read history, and you know this more than me, Dr. Mueller is the more you read history, the more every generation was reflecting on everything in the same way, which is why when we say, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, Hebrews chapter one. So yes, we are in those last days, but we are in the, we are in the days that Christ still reigns. And so let us always fix our eyes on that message. And uh, well, the world's getting older. I don't know if it's getting weaker or not, but we sure are weak, which is why we need a savior. Let's continue on as we move forward, number 15. And I think I'll read all the way to the end, which is on page 46 into page 47. Furthermore, God ordained marriage to be a help against human weakness. Canon law itself says that the old rigor ought to be relaxed now and then in these latter times because of human weakness. We wish this would also be done in this matter. We expect that at some point churches will lack pastors if marriage continues to be forbidden. Well, God's commandment is in force and the custom of the church is well known. Impure celibacy will cause many scandals, adulteries, and other crimes that deserve punishment from just rulers. In light of all this, it is incredibly cruel that marriage of priests is forbidden. God has commanded that marriage be honored. Marriage is most highly honored in the laws of well-ordered commonwealths, even among the heathen. But now men, even priests, are cruelly put to death, contrary to the intent of the canon law, for no other reason that they are married. Paul in 1 Timothy 4 says that a doctrine of demons forbids marriage, verses 1 through 3. This is clearly seen by how laws against marriage are enforced with such penalties. Since no human law can destroy God's commands, neither can it be done by any vow. 
So Cyprian advises women who do not keep the promise that they have made to remain chaste, that they should marry. He says, if they are unwilling or unable to persevere, it is better for them to marry than to fall into the fire by their lusts. They should certainly give no offense to their brothers and sisters. And even canon law shows some leniency toward those who have taken vows before the proper age and have been in, have, has been the case up to this point. So Melanchthon is just furthering the, the, the argument about why it's important that marriage be held in honor. Your thoughts? Yeah, it's interesting how he opens it up here. So he's now moved beyond just the marriage of priests into, you know, forced celibacy for others. And, you know, in particular, at the end, this case he raises, uh, it's, you know, we don't live in this world anymore. But back in, in the time he's writing this, families could commit their children to monasteries or convents, uh, and they would take their monastic vows before they hit puberty. And so this is this is a reminder. We're not just talking about you know the parish pastor. We're talking about anybody who's being forced into a life of celibacy or being told this is this is God's will for them uh, when they're maybe not you know when they don't have the gift or, or or things like that. So again, he's just reminding us of both God's desire for for good marriage and also putting that in the context of natural law. Uh, I think in in all of this, there's maybe one other thing that's you know under the surface for all of this. And that's kind of the assumption that sexuality is bad. You know, that, that virginity or celibacy is superior or holier than sexuality. And uh, this is, this is an application of this that I think goes beyond the question of, Hey, can our clergy or should our clergy or why do our clergy get married? Uh, but it's a reminder, God's good gifts are holy. And it's, it's not just that, that, you know, human sexuality is tolerated within marriage. But this is part of God's institution. It's part of his good creation. The marriage bed is, is undefiled. Uh, God gives this gift to his, to his people. And then to forbid that gift, to take away the goodness of God, uh, or to take that gift and distort it and use it in ways that God has told us not to, both are doing the same thing. They're saying, my will is greater than God's will. And, and this article is recalling us, whether it's priests or whether it's you know, other servants of the church or whether it's lay people, live according to God's desires for you. If, if God has called you to singleness, then rejoice in that and serve him and your neighbor. If God's called you to the vocation of marriage, then rejoice in that and love and honor your spouse and lead, lead a chaste life in marriage. Uh, and don't cast judgment on those who aren't in your state. Uh, we listen to God's will for them. But if someone chooses to remain single, or if someone chooses to marry, then rejoice with them. And, and Dr. Mueller, we talked about this a little bit before, um, before our time, is that there is a tendency also for our church workers that the ideal situation is that you get married. And so they might say, well, we want a pastor, we want a DCE, we want a teacher who's married, because that's like the fullness of everything um, that we want in our church worker. Or a young person, like you mentioned, is not married, so they ask, well, what's wrong with them? What would be your encouragement to Christian people as they look at the single person 
and how to celebrate them. Do you have any thoughts yeah. as we wrap up our time? Rejoice in God's gifts. Um, we, uh, you know, lots of churches love matchmaking. You know, they see a, they see a single church worker and their first thought is they want to, they want to get them connected with someone. And, you know, it's wonderful that you prize marriage like that, but be gentle. You can be respectful because someone might, might have that gift. And in fact, someone with the gift of celibacy can be a fantastic asset and blessing to your congregation. Uh, be good with them. Yeah. Receive them for who they are. If they are looking for a spouse, then by all means, make introductions. Just be kind about it. <laughs> don't, don't, put on, don't put on too much pressure. <laughs> Very good. Well, that's our time. The Reverend Dr. Stephen Mueller, Professor of Theology at Concordia University in uh, Irvine, California, confessing the truth of Scripture from the Augsburg Confession. Dr. Mueller, thank you for your faithful teaching here on Concord Matters. Always a pleasure. God bless you and your ears. I'm your host, Pastor Brady Finner. Thank you for joining us, and the Lord keep you safe in the palm of His hand.